Chapter Four of Pocket Island. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Pocket Island by Charles Clark Munn. Chapter Four, The Boy. A boy is an inverted man. Small things seem to him great, and great ones small. Trifling troubles move him to tears and serious ones pass unnoticed. To snare a few worthless suckers in the meadow brook is to the country boy of more importance than the gathering of a field of grain. To play hooky and go nutting is far better than to study and fit himself for earning a livelihood. He works at his play and makes play of his work. He disdains boyhood and longs for manhood. In spite of his inverted position, I would rather be a boy than a man, and a country boy than a city-bred one. The country boy has so much the greater chance for enjoyment, and is not so soon warped by restrictions, and tarnished by the sewers of vice. He has deep forests, wide meadows, and pure brooks to play in, and if his feet grow broad from lack of shoes, he hears the song of birds, the whispers of winds in the trees, and knows the scent of new-mown hay and fresh water-lilies, the beauty of flowers, green fields, and shady woods. He learns how apples taste eaten under the tree, nuts cracked in the woods, sweet cider as it runs from the press, and strawberries picked in the orchard while moist with dew. All these delights are a closed book to the city boy, the country boy is surrounded by pure and wholesome influences and grows to be a better man for it. The wide range of forest and field, pure air, sweet water, plenty of sun and rain are all his, and worth ten times the chance for life, health, enjoyment, and a good character than ever comes to the city boy. He may sooner learn to smoke or gather a choice selection of profane and vulgar words. He may have smaller feet and better clothes. But he often fails in attaining a healthy body and pure mind, and never knows what a royal, wide-open chance for enjoying boyhood days he has missed. He never knows the delight of wading barefoot down a mountain brook where the clear water leaps over mossy ledges, and where he can pull trout from every foam-flecked pool. He never realizes the charming suspense of lying upon the grassy bank of a meadow stream and snaring a sucker, or what fun it is to enter a chestnut grove just after frost and rain have covered the ground with brown nuts, or setting traps, shaking apple trees, or gathering wild grapes. He never rode to the cider mill on a load of apples, and had the chance to shy one at every bird and squirrel on the way, or when winter came to slide downhill when the slide was a half-mile field of crusted snow. All these and many other delights he never knows. But one thing he does know, and knows it early, and that is how much smarter, better dressed, and better off in every way he is than the poor, despised greenie of a country boy. He may, it is true, go early to the theater and look at half-nude actresses loaded with diamonds, 
but he never sees a twenty-acre cedar pasture just after an ice storm when the morning sun shines fair upon it. True to his inverted comprehension, the country boy, and our boy especially, sees and feels all his surroundings and all the voices of nature from a boy's standpoint. He feels that his hours of work are long and hard, and that the countless chores are interspersed through his daily life on the farm for the sole purpose of preventing him from having a moment he can call his own. He has a great many pleasant hours, however, and does not realize why they pass so quickly. His little world seems large to him, and all his experience is great in their importance. A ten-acre meadow appears like a boundless prairie, and a half-mile-wide piece of woods an unbounded forest. On one side of the farm is a clear stream known as Ragged Brook that, starting among the foothills of a low mountain range, laughs and chatters, leaps and tumbles down the hills, through the gorges and over the ledges, as if endowed with life. Since he is not blessed with brothers or sisters, this, together with the woods, the birds, and the squirrels, becomes his companion. The first trout he ever catches in this brook seems a monster, and never afterward does one pull quite so hard. Isolated as he is, and having none but his elders for company, he talks to the creatures of the field and forest as if they could understand him and he watches their ways and habits and tries to make them his friends. He is a lonely boy, and seldom sees others of his age, so that perhaps when he does they make a more distinct impression on his mind. One day he is allowed to go to the mill with his father, and it is an event in his life he never forgets. The old brown mill, with its big wheels splashing in the clear water, the millstones that rumble so swiftly, the dusty miller who takes the bags of grain, all interest him, and especially so does the pond above the mill that is dotted with white lilies and where there is a boat fastened to a willow by a chain. On the way back, and a mile from home, his father stops to chat with a man in front of a large house with tall pillars and two immense maples on either side of the gate. Standing beside the man, and holding on to one of his hands with her two small ones, is a little girl who looks at the boy with big, wondrous eyes. He wants to tell her about the mill and ask her if she ever saw the great wheel go around, but he is afraid to. He hears the man call her Liddy and wonders if she ever caught a fish. Then his world grows larger as the months pass one by one until he is sent to a little brown schoolhouse a mile away and finds a small crowd of boys and girls, only two or three of whom he ever saw before. One of them is the girl who looked wonderingly at him a year previous. He tells her he knows what her name is and feels a little hurt because that fact does not seem to interest her. He studies his lessons because he is told he must, and plays hard because he enjoys it. He feels no special attraction toward any of his schoolmates, until one winter day this same blue-eyed girl asks him for a place on his sled. 
he shares it with her as a well-behaved boy should, and so begins the first faint bond of feeling that like a tiny rill on the hillside slowly gathers power until at last a mighty river it sweeps all other feelings before it. How slowly that rippling rill of feeling grew during the next few years need not be specified. Like other boys of his age, he feels at times ashamed of caring whether she notices him or not, and again the incipient pangs of jealousy because she notices other boys. In a year he begins to bring her flag-root in summer, or big apples in winter, and although her way home is different from his, he occasionally feels called upon to accompany her, heedless of the fact that it costs him an extra half-mile and fault-finding at being late home. He passes unharmed through the terrors of speaking pieces on examination day, and when St. Valentine's Day comes, he conquers the momentous task of indicting a verse where bliss rhymes with kiss upon one of those missives which he has purchased for five cents at the village store, and timidly leaves it where the same girl will find it in her desk at school. On two occasions during the last summer at the district school, he, quite a big boy now, joins the older boys and girls under a large apple tree that grows near the schoolhouse and plays a silly game, the principal feature of which consists in his having to choose some girl to kiss. As he knows very well whom he prefers, and has the courage to kiss her when his turn comes, that seems a most delightful game. And although he and other boys who were guilty of this proceeding are jeered at by the younger ones, the experience makes such an impression on him that he lies awake half the first night thinking about it. But all too soon to him comes the end of school days, and especially the charming companionship of this particular fair-haired girl. On the last day she asks him to write in her album, and he again indulges in rhyme and inscribes therein a melancholy verse, the tenor of which is a hope that she will see that his grave is kept clean, as such an unhappy duty must, in the near future, devolve upon someone. She, in turn, writes him a farewell note of similar tone, and encloses a lock of her hair tied with a blue ribbon. He has planned to walk home with her when the last day ends, and perhaps participate in a more tender leave-taking, but she rides home with her parents, and so that sweet scheme is foiled. With a heavy heart he watches her out of sight, and then, feeling that possibly he may never see her again, takes his books and turns away from the dear old brown schoolhouse for the last time. He locks the curl of hair and her note up in a tin box where he keeps his fish hooks, and resumes his unending round of hard work and chores. His horizon has enlarged a good deal, for he is now twelve years old, but it does not yet include Liddy. It is over a year before he sees her again, though once, when given a rainy half-day to fish in Ragged Brook, he, like a silly boy, deserts that enticing stream for an hour and cuts across lots near her home in hopes that he may see her again, but fails. 
Then one summer day a surprise comes to him. Half a mile from his home, and in the direction his thoughts often turn, is a cedar pasture where blackberries grow in plenty, and here he is sent to pick them. It is here, and while unconscious what fate has in store for him, that he suddenly hears a scream, and running toward him, down the path, comes a girl in a short dress, with a calico sunbonnet flying behind her, until almost at his feet she stumbles and falls, and there, sprawling on the grass, is Liddy. In an instant he is at her side, and how glad he is of a chance to help her up and soothe her fears no one but himself ever knows. She, too, has been picking berries, and has come suddenly upon a monster snake just gliding from a cedar bough almost over her head. When her fright subsides, he at once hunts for and kills that reptile with far more satisfaction than he ever felt in killing one before. It is an ungrateful return, for although the boy knew it not, the snake has done him a greater kindness than he ever realized. Then, when all danger is removed, how sweet it is to sit beside her in the shade and talk over school days while he looks into her tender blue eyes. And how glad he is to fill her pail with berries which he has picked, and when the sun is almost down, how charming it is to walk home with her along the maple-shaded lane. He even hopes that he will see another snake so that he can kill that also and show her how brave a boy is. But no more snakes come to his aid that day, and only the gentlest of breezes rustles the spreading boughs that shade their pathway. When she thanks him at parting, a little look of gratitude makes her blue eyes seem more tender than ever to him, and her voice sound like sweetest music. His world has enlarged wonderfully now, for Liddy has entered into it. End of chapter 4 Recording by Roger Moline